Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Previously on Maverick. The crazy thing that was spreading through the rumor mill was that in some of the hardest to reach places in the world, leaders were seeing small house churches growing and multiplying in movement fashion. So I went to 44 different countries and gathered more than a thousand interviews, covered a quarter of a million miles in travel. It took me three years and it turned into the largest global survey of Muslim movements to Christ ever conducted. My study was focused on the 21st century. I wanted to know what was happening today. And what I discovered was that more Muslims had come to Christ than at any time in history. We are living in the time of potentially the greatest expansion of the kingdom of Jesus that has ever happened. You're listening to Maverick. And before we get any further, I think it's important to clarify something. There's one reason in particular why these stories of movements have gone untold. It's because they're dangerous to tell. They expose people who are breaking laws and turning on their countries in order to follow Jesus. So we aren't going to use the actual names or voices of people, and we won't always pinpoint which country they're from. Instead, each episode will take us to a new region, and we'll paint broad strokes of the movements there. We'll peek behind the curtain of Islamic cultures and governments and find out what has made these areas so closed off to the gospel and what things are at play now that are beginning to change the hearts and minds of thousands of Muslims. So with that in mind, we head to East Africa. When David first began tracking rumors of movements, Eastern Africa was already on his mind. He visited many times before and was excited to go back because of something that happened on his last trip to the region. He was there attending a conference. It was a gathering of church leaders and missionaries from around that area. The week was filled with hearing from different speakers and breakout sessions. And one day in between speakers, a young guy walked to the front of the room and grabbed the microphone. He got up and spoke and he said, we are seeing Muslims come to Christ now by the thousands. And everyone there in the audience kind of looked at him with incredulity. They didn't really believe what this guy was saying. And he looked at him, he could see the blank stares in their eyes. And he said, come and see, come and see. And the invitation he gave that day stuck with David, which is why years later, when David was making arrangements to go back into East Africa and follow the rumors of movements, he thought of that guy and he found a way to get in touch with him. And I said, uh, you invited uh, everyone to come and see. I want to come and see. Show me what's going on. And we took off on a journey of uh, several hundred miles uh, around Eastern Africa, 
visiting different people groups. So we would go close to where these people were, to some town that was at a crossroads. They would walk, in some cases, you know, a day or so to meet us. In other cases, they were at a gathering and we would go down and drop into the middle of it. So each place was a little bit different. And on one particular day, David's guide told him that they were headed to a town where he would meet a man who was doing some pretty amazing things. This man had developed a reputation for being especially effective at winning shakes to the Lord. So I was ready to either be um, disappointed with how this person wasn't what he was cracked up to be, or to be amazed because a sheikh is like an elder, a leader in the Islamic community. You just don't find a lot of sheikh evangelists. So David made his way to this cafe where he was scheduled to meet nine guys. They were Muslims who had become followers of Jesus and each represented different movements within their communities. And one of them was the Sheikh evangelist that David had just heard about. He was a a lively, energetic, uh, charismatic fellow. Not very big, but uh, just a sparkle in his eye and a real quick mind. And uh, we had coffee together and we're munching on the local food. And uh, I just asked him, I said, tell me your story. And that's when Hakim began to unfold this remarkable story of how, from the time he was a little child, he had been raised up and trained to just focus on Islam. I had memorized the Quran and hundreds and hundreds of hadith. I was responsible for 300 Islamic teachers that I was overseeing, and I was in charge of four mosques. But then one day, someone handed him a New Testament written in Arabic. Most Muslims can't actually understand Arabic. But because of all his training, Hakim could, and he took it home with him. So he began reading it, and uh, that night he prayed, and uh, he said to God, he said, um, you know my heart. If there's something that I must do, I want you to show me. And after that prayer, I went to sleep. But I had a disturbing dream. Isa came to me and showed me the minaret of the mosque. There was a man standing at the bottom of it, trying to chop it down with an axe. When I looked closer, I saw that the man was me. A minaret is the tower attached to a mosque where they sound the call to prayer. So for a sheikh to chop it down would be incredibly significant. Hakim had that same dream three more times that night, and the next day, he needed answers. I found the man who gave me the Bible, and I grabbed him by his cloak. I demanded him to tell me what my dream meant. He said it meant that I would lead many sheikhs to faith in Jesus. And that was an answer to his prayer. The prayer Hakim had was, you know my heart, If there's something I must do, then show me. And from that, he gave his life to Christ. He became a follower of Jesus. In the course of that, he lost everything. Uh, His family disowned him. He lost his farm. He lost his job, of course. Lost his relationships. My father tried to kill me. He threw a spear into my back. It pierced me and left a scar. But I escaped. And I have been following Jesus ever since. From that point on, after leaving his family, he he would go from uh, town to town, village to village, 
always uh, seek out the sheikh in the, the major mosques, and he would talk with him. He would uh, discuss the Quran with him, discuss the Hadith, discuss the life of the Prophet Muhammad, and then talk about Jesus and about the New Testament, the Injil, and how the Torah, the Old Testament, had prophesied that the Messiah would come who would take away the sins of the world. From those interactions, Hakim has seen over 400 sheikhs come to faith in Jesus. And those sheikhs are in turn impacting thousands as they teach people who Jesus really is. And if you would have told missionaries a couple decades ago that this is how God was going to reach East Africa, they would have had a hard time believing you. Yeah, you know, we, um, we go into the Muslim world to share the gospel, and we think in terms of the most responsive persons being those who are marginalized, those who are down and out, those who have been mistreated, because, you know, we know that these people feel a sense of loss and a sense of need. But Hakim doesn't think like an outsider looking in at a Muslim context. Hakim is going after the elite, the leaders, the ones who've devoted their lives to the teachings of the Quran. If anyone seems unlikely to come to Jesus, it's certainly them. From a Western perspective, it makes sense to avoid the sheikhs and imams and look for the common people, the ones that aren't as radical or powerful, and start there, preferably flying under the radar. What surprised me was how many of those who were coming to faith in Christ were actually from the epicenter of the Muslim uh, religion culture, the people who had power, people who had influence. And uh, most of the uh, Western missionaries would be reluctant to even approach those people with a gospel witness because those are the people who could have them uh, kicked out of the country or have them uh, shut down in one way or another. But what to us seems not the way we would do it God has a way of saying, and that's why I did it that way, so that you would know it was me doing this. And I think that's one key reason why movements are happening in East Africa. Because fear is giving way to faith as God walks people into precarious situations and then does something they'd never think to do themselves. From where I lived and what I saw, it was exceedingly rare for any local believer to be willing to reach out to Muslims, primarily because they're afraid of them. This is Mark Grossman. He and his family lived as missionaries in East Africa for 23 years. In the past, in my opinion, Christian missionaries have made the mistake of intentionally avoiding Muslims and sharing with non-Muslims, knowing that they're easier fruit, so to speak. And Mark really didn't want to make the same mistake. He didn't want to avoid people just because they may seem intimidating. So he and his fellow workers had a pretty simple strategy. Before they would head into a village, they'd pray that God would bring them people of peace, and they'd go in with an open mind. They didn't look for a particular kind of person or avoid particular kinds of people. And they expected God to bring them people that they wouldn't think to go to themselves. And that takes us to some people who might be um, considered down and out. But it will also take you to influential people. I remember on one case, we went to a chief. She had married a very influential and wealthy Muslim man. And um, that title landed her the job of chief of the village. But we asked for permission before we went. And we wanted her to know who we were. 
she said, well, if you have this message of Jesus, why don't you tell it to me? And we shared a complete gospel message with her. She started smiling and she said, I'm going to tell you something that no one knows. And I said, okay. And she said, I'm actually a Christian. And so she threw wide open the door for us to go door to door sharing the message of Jesus Christ. And again, strategy would tell you to avoid a chief. Talk to as many people in the village as you can before someone in charge kicks you out or tries to kill you. But in East Africa, that strategy is going out the window as the church learns to embrace what and even sometimes who they once feared. God is working in spirit in himself in places where the gospel has perhaps not yet come. And he's raising up sleeping giant of the church to get over their fear and over their hate and to humble themselves before the Lord and to joyfully and enthusiastically, I would say courageously, be living in obedience. And uh, one of the most uh, riveting stories uh, came from uh, the fellow who had been my guide, my uh, translator in much of this process. And uh, this brother's name was Elias. Elias grew up in East Africa, but he was from a Christian family. And he says that very early on, God put a love for Muslims on his heart. I always wanted to share the gospel with them, but it was dangerous. And then a war broke out in Somalia and many people fled to my country. So I went and planted myself in the middle of the Somali refugee quarter. One night after working a long day with the refugees, he went back to his little one room. Uh, it's really a mud hut is what it is. Uh, he went back into his little room alone, and prepared his dinner. And just as uh, he was finishing up, there was a knock at the door. It was a man named Abdel Ahad. He was a sheikh from Mogadishu. And I wondered if that would be the night I was killed. When I opened the door, he immediately said to me, Yes or no, Jesus' blood paid for the sins of everyone in the world. I looked back at him and I said, Yes. And the sheikh responded firmly, You're lying. And then he hesitated for a moment and he looked at Elias and said, The blood of Jesus cannot forgive my sins. The sheikhs in Mogadishu were aligned with a terrorist group, and Abdelahad had done things he really regretted. He told Elias about the violence that he had been involved in, and he started to weep as he asked how Jesus could forgive him. I told him that Jesus could forgive even him. We prayed together, and he was saved that very night. But before he left, he grabbed me by the arm and said to me, When you see me on the street, you are afraid of me. And that is what sheikhs want. We want to make Christians fear us. But you need to know that inside we are empty. Don't be afraid of us. We need the gospel. Elias says that that interaction was the beginning of his effective ministry to Muslims. From that point on, he wasn't thinking in terms of who did and didn't seem worth trying to reach. He wasn't dismissing people as ultra-religious and untouchable. He just started looking at each one of them and saw the emptiness inside and their need for Jesus. 
people like me, when we started, we thought we needed to know these religions inside and out so that we could understand them and, and really see what we were dealing with. And a real trigger point for us was when we stopped looking at the religion, we started looking at lost individuals. And the religion was almost marginal. Religion was just what lost people do to try to reach God. But the particulars of it <laughs> were almost irrelevant because in reality, none of them were going to reach God. They needed God to reach down to them. And so we need to see them not as these competing religions. We don't have a religion that competes against other religions. We have a relationship with God through Jesus. And we offer that to them. But if we go toe-to-toe, religion-to-religion, then we're back into culture wars or you know, colonial battles, that sort of thing. And that's just a losing proposition. It's really not the gospel. And it's that ability to see the individual that's changing everything, to look past the powerful positions and the dangers, to get beyond the religiosity, to see every person as just a person who needs Jesus. It's why people like Hakim and Elias are seeing God do things they hadn't anticipated in people they didn't expect. And it's why East Africa is seeing movements like never before. This season of Maverick was sponsored by Global Gates. They're dedicated to reaching the ends of the earth through global gateway cities. For more information or to get involved, visit globalgates.info. To help support the Maverick podcast, consider giving monthly at themaverickpodcast.com.